So every year, right, every year, school year, throughout elementary and middle school, I remember being called down to the nurse's office in order to take a vision test. How many of you remember doing that? Taking a vision test with the school nurse, right? And it was just one of those series of tests that, that each and every year the school nurse had to perform. It was a vision test and hearing. They had the unfortunate job of checking everybody for lice. Um, not something I'm ever wanting to do, uh, right? I mean, they checked you for scoliosis, and then, of course, your height and your weight. And, and this was just something that took place every school year uh, throughout middle school and high school. And, and I know we're all familiar with those eye charts at the doctor's office that that determine, you know, or help to determine how well you can see the clarity of your vision, right? And you kind of read it line by line, and the, the letters get smaller and smaller and smaller uh, and until uh, your, your uh, vision is determined. So we're all familiar with that, but that's not how uh, the vision test was conducted at, at the school that I went to. Um, rather, we used this machine, kind of like one of those, looked like a VR thing now, right? One of those virtual reality things. We stuck our face in it, and different letters would appear, um, and you'd read that off, and then if you got to that line correct, you know, the next line would be a little bit smaller, and so on and so forth, until uh, you barely couldn't see it all, and then your vision had been determined, and so this is what we did, and so you read the letter, you called it out to the school nurse, who happened to be my mom, all right? And so I was like, yeah, mom, I see it. Boom, 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 boom. Um, and so like I get called down eighth grade with a bunch of my buddies, a bunch of my classmates, and, and it's my turn to take the vision test. My mom throws up the first letters, and I'm like, A-E-I-O-U, nailed it, got it, right? Whatever the letters were, I don't remember. Um, the second line comes up, right? I don't know what they were, but same results, right? I killed it. The third one comes up, and I'm like, hmm, I can't see that as well. But, you know, you, you kind of still go with the flow. You're, you're half of them are guessing like P-Q-R-S-T. And then I got it right, right? I, I was able to see them all. And then the, then the next line comes up, and I knew I was in trouble, right? It could have been like the droid names from Star Wars, C-3PO. Like, I just, I, I didn't know, right? I didn't know. And so I started just saying whatever I think I see. And I could tell my mom starts getting a little frustrated. She's like, Derek, just, just read the letters, right? Like, I got a lot of kids to get through. Just read the letters. And I'm like, Mom, I can't, right? Like, I can't see them. So eventually she has me get up and so the rest of my classmates could be tested. But you know what she did? Brought the vision thing home, right? <laughs> and so now I'm sitting in my living room and my mom is making me take the test at home, right? She's like, my son isn't going to fail this vision test. But unfortunately, the change of scenery didn't change the fact that I couldn't see. And so in eighth grade, I got my first pair of glasses, right? Now, obviously, we know the purpose of glasses is to restore your vision to 20-20 or as close to perfect as possible. Glasses are meant to bring clarity to what was blurry, but it's not like every pair of glasses accomplishes that purpose, right? I mean, take sunglasses, for instance. I can rock these bad boys all day, and I do so more in California than I ever, ever did in my life in the Midwest because it's always sunny out here. And so I can wear these all the time. And certainly they're helpful when it's crazy sunny outside or in the middle of the day, but the reality is they don't enhance my vision. The, I almost had to step off the stage. It got super dark. <laughs> <laughs> this would be memorable, though. You guys would enjoy that. You wouldn't forget this one. Um, and so, like, right, you can wear this all the time, but these don't enhance my vision, right? And, and really, the reality is they're only good at certain parts of the day. If I wear these at night, especially when I'm driving, it's 
this is not going to go well, right? It's not going to help me see any better. And so, yeah, they have a purpose, but, but again, they're not going to enhance my vision. Now, these glasses may, whoo, I know, right? These might be the most attractive and fashionable glasses that I have up here this, with me this morning. But despite the fact that these are the best-looking ones, I can't see a thing, right? And, and not, they don't even help me at all. In fact, they obstruct my vision. If you want a pair of these, by the way, they got every color at Party City, right? Like every single color, right? But I mean, the reality is they, these make my eyesight worse, right? Because of the obstructive view, I can't see as well when I have those on. But these, these are probably my favorite ones. I'm not going to lie. These are probably my favorite ones, right? And despite the fact that these lenses are huge, right? They're so big, they do nothing for me. They almost fell off. They do nothing for me when it comes to restoring my sight. And so not only can I not see, but I look ridiculous as well. Although it would be fun to drive around Elk Grove with these on just for a little bit, right? I mean, just, just to see what people do. Now, I snagged these numbers from my daughter's dress-up bin, right? And, and these look fairly normal, but again, they don't help me see any more clearly, right? It's just normal plastic, right? And so really all these are are fashionable safety goggles. These are doing absolutely nothing for me. Vera, our middle child, she rocked these to be Edna Mode at Halloween. Uh, it was awesome. Um, it was awesome. But then, you know, you have ah, prescription glasses, and you can see again, right? You can see again, and prescription glasses, these are the only pair of glasses that are going to actually enhance my vision, Allow me to see everything clearly. Restore my sight to 2020 vision. But without them, my vision will suffer, right? Without them, I can't see as well. And I know that glasses make a huge difference for so many of us. We either wear these glasses or, or we'll wear contacts. And, and so they make such a huge difference because some people can't even function without wearing glasses or contacts. Our worship pastor, Trevor, that dude is blind if he doesn't wear his glasses. He will tell you the same thing, right? He can't see if he's not wearing glasses. And so it's just a game changer for so many people. And so I understand why that's such a huge draw to go out and get LASIK surgery or, you know, laser eye surgery in order to have perfect vision. And the reason is because seeing with clarity is amazing. It's an absolute game changer. It enhances the quality of our lives. It even changes the way we live. Now, I'm not sure what your eyesight is like. I know there's a handful of you that probably have 20-20 vision. The rest of us don't care right? We don't care that you can see every single word on the eye chart. Keep that stuff to yourself. We're just jealous, right? We just wish we had 20-20 vision. My wife does, and the other day she was like, yeah, I just wake up and can see clearly. Like, so what, you know? Like, so what? Um, some of us, though, like, you have terrible vision. Like, you know someone's on stage, but you don't really know, like, what's going on. You just kind of see arms flailing and things like that because your vision is terrible. But here's the thing, right? Whatever your vision is like, right? Whatever your eyesight is like, we want to we talk about vision this morning, but with a little bit of a different angle. See, this morning, we want to focus on our spiritual eyesight. 
We want to focus on our spiritual eyesight. Now, you may be thinking spiritual eyesight, what does that even mean? Well, as, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we ought to strive. It ought to be our goal to see things the same way Jesus does, to have his perspective, right? We ought to strive to have the same perspective as Jesus in every area of our lives, I mean, after all, we believe he is the son of God. And not only that, he came to earth and lived a perfect life. So you better believe his worldview, his perspective is going to be superior to ours, right? And so we ought to adopt his perspective. We ought to adopt his worldview as our own. And whenever we're able to do that, Whenever that moment comes or we're in this certain area of our lives and we see things as Jesus does, we have spiritual 2020 vision. Now, I understand everybody in this room may not yet have a relationship with Jesus. Everybody in here may not be a Christian. But even if you're not a Christian, you'll probably at least agree with this idea that Jesus seems like a pretty good dude, right? He seems like a good guy, a moral teacher. And so even if you have yet to identify yourself as a Christian, you could probably say or at least agree with this idea that, hey, if I were to adopt this perspective that Jesus has as a good person, as a moral person, my life would probably benefit. There would probably be value if I were to adopt his perspective and see things as he did. And so even if you're not a believer this morning, even if you're not a Christian, my hope is that you'll continue to track along with us as we talk about that today. But certainly the question has to be raised, well, if we need to see things as Jesus does, how do we know how Jesus sees things, right? How do we see things the same way that Jesus does if we don't know how to determine his perspective, his worldview? Well, thankfully, we have scripture, right? And the Bible records Jesus' life, his ministry, how he lived, the things he said, what he taught. And so as we read and study scripture more and more, our understanding of how Jesus views the world will only grow. And as our understanding grows, we can then work toward and make progress toward seeing things, altering our perspective to adopt how Jesus sees the world and make that the way we see the world. It's all through Scripture. That's how we're able to make this happen. Of course, seeing things as Jesus does is easier said than done, but it's certainly not impossible. And as uh, as Christians, right, it's super important for us to do our best to try to see as Jesus does in every area of our lives. Take finances, for example. Well, how does Jesus see finances? How does Jesus see money and stuff and possessions? Right, if we're going to adopt his perspective, we need to understand that you and I, the things that we have, we're not owners of that. We're managers, God has entrusted those things to us, right? But they belong to him. And so we need to honor or or we need to manage those things in a way that's pleasing to him. Or what about relationships? Obviously, Jesus has a lot to say about relationships. The Bible has a lot to say about relationships. One of the things is that we need to put the needs of others ahead of our own. Philippians talks about that in chapter 2, and because of Jesus' humility, this is something that he did. He put the needs of others ahead of his own. Romans talks about how we need to be living at peace with everyone, as much as we can to live at peace with everyone. And so when we have relationships, right, 
There's so many ways that we can uh, kind of come to an understanding of how Jesus sees them, but these are just a few thoughts. Well, what about marriage, right? The Bible says how we're to love and respect and submit to one another, to submit to our spouse. What about in the area of work, whether it's volunteer or something that you do to get paid for, just a hobby? The Bible talks about how we need to do everything as if God is our boss, right? To do everything to the best of our ability as if we're working for him. What about sex? The Bible talks about how it's supposed to only take place in the context of marriage. And so all of these different things, we can figure out, well, how does Jesus see that? And how can I live my life accordingly? And once we adopt Jesus' perspective and have 20-20 vision in these areas or any other area, it changes the way we live, or at least it ought to, right? It ought to change the way we live because once we see clearly, as Jesus does, once we see that, we come to this understanding, man, that the prior way of life for us, our, our perspective up to that point is blurry, which is why the way we're doing things, how we're living our life, isn't working, right? It isn't working. But adopting Jesus' viewpoint brings clarity and a better way to live. Now, of course, we could spend all morning talking about all of these areas and then some. But instead, we want to focus on one particular area. How does Jesus view people? How does Jesus view people? So we want to talk about that this morning, but not only want we want to do that, we also want to make sure that we're seeing things, seeing people, the same way Jesus does. So if you haven't done so already, I would invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 9 or navigate there in your Bible app. Matthew chapter 9. And we're going to be reading, or I'm going to start with verse 9 and just read that one verse for us as we dive in. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Now we know from this passage that Matthew was a tax collector. That's how he made his living. And at this point in history, right, in this, in this region of Palestine where, where Matthew was at, uh, the tax collectors worked for the Roman government, right? And the Romans would typically, because they occupied that area, they typically employed natives to the region that they occupied so that their tax collectors were familiar with the local people and the local customs, right? And so this is kind of how they went about doing business. And so like any other tax collector, it was Matthew's job to collect from the people the fees set by the government. He would go around and collect what the government called him to collect. And whatever the tax collector would, would gather above and beyond the limit set by the government, they were able to keep as their own commission. Now, Unfortunately, right, the tax collectors had a reputation of, of setting a price well beyond what the government wanted. And they did that in order to pad their pockets, right? And so these guys had a ton of money. It was a lucrative business, but not a very reputable one, right? And so as a result, you can imagine that public perception, public opinion of tax collectors was not very high. And that's putting it mildly, right? I mean, that, that's putting it mildly. In fact, we, we kind of come to this understanding that tax collectors were actually hated and despised by the people. 
right? They were hated and despised by the people. Not only that, some people even considered them to be traitors because they sold out their own people to the Roman government. Now, if you flip through the pages of some history books, you'll find out that Matthew looked a lot like this guy. Yeah, right? Sheriff of Nottingham from the Disney classic Robin Hood. Unfortunately, these dudes had a very similar reputation among the people. And you knew when you saw them coming, it's going to be a bad day. Now, knowing the public perception and the typical behavior of tax collectors is why Jesus' call to Matthew to follow him is so shocking and so unexpected. You see, Jesus knew exactly the type of person that Matthew was. He knew what he was all about. And yet Matthew is invited by Jesus to follow him and to not only follow him, to be one of his closest followers, to be one of the 12 that would get to know Jesus more intimately than anyone else. This kind of decision to invite someone in like that, it just didn't make sense, especially if someone like Jesus. It was shocking. It would be like asking the sheriff of Nottingham to be one of our ministry leaders here at LifePoint, right? Like, sorry, Darren, you're no longer leading the usher team. The sheriff of Nottingham is now in charge, right? I mean, and this would be surprising because this guy's a crook, right? And everybody knows it, and no one likes him. But if that move by Jesus weren't surprising enough, check out what happens next in chapter 9, verse 10. It says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. So shortly after accepting Jesus' invitation, right, Matthew plans some kind of, of meal, some kind of banquet for Jesus, and it's going to be held at Matthew's house. And we learn from this verse that, that the guest list included Jesus and his disciples, but not only them, it included other tax collectors and sinners, right? And, and in all likelihood, these people were Matthew's buddies, and chances are they were probably some of his closest buddies and probably his only buddies, because anybody who had a reputable character wasn't spending any time around Matthew or anybody else who would fall into this same profession. It's also important for us to understand that, that this meal that Jesus shares with Matthew and all of his buddies is, is far more significant than just them running out to, you know, local In-N-Out or Chili's to, to grab some food and then they're going to be on their way. Right? It's far more significant than that, far more meaningful. See, what we have to understand is in this particular culture, sharing a meal with someone involves social and religious guidelines. One commentator writes this, Boundaries were established that designated who were included and excluded from a meal, and that also served to delineate religious and ethical obligations toward the participants. In other words, you didn't just sit down with whomever you wanted to share a meal. If you were an upstanding and religious person, there were people that simply were unfit to share a meal with you. And so, as you might guess, the tax collectors fell among the list of the, you know, the, the do not dine with 
list. The tax collectors were on that list. And not only did everyone, right, not only did, did everyone hate them for overcharging the people, but tax collectors were also regarded by the Jews as being ceremonially unclean, right? Basically because they broke the rules of Judaism. The tax collectors were known for interacting with Gentiles or any non-Jew, which was a big no-no. And the tax collectors were also in the habit of working on the Sabbath, a day that was supposed to be set aside for rest, for worship, a day that was set aside to be holy. But the tax collectors didn't pay attention to that rule. And so again, not only did everybody hate them for padding their own pockets, but they were regarded as ceremonially unclean. And so now Matthew has invited, or excuse me, now Jesus has invited Matthew to be part of his inner circle. And not only that, but now he's sitting down to a meal with societal and religious outcasts. People who would have been considered as the pagans, the degenerates, the lowlifes. And again, this is not something you would expect especially from someone in Jesus' position. Now, we, before we continue to move on with the passage, I, I want to just modernize this story just, just a little bit. And I want to do that by asking you a question, a rhetorical question. If this account in Matthew chapter 9 took place today, who would be sitting around the table with Jesus? Who would be the social or religious rejects? Who would be those that no one else really wants to interact with? See, and we, and we don't need to kind of express our opinion on that, but I think it's important for us to consider that question. Who would be sitting at the table with Jesus? Let's check out what happens next in verse 11. It says, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, as you, you may know, you know, the Pharisees were the religious rulers during that period of time. They were the keepers of all the laws and the rules and the regulations that went along with Judaism. And, and they were strict followers of all these rules. And so you better believe they made it a point to never interact with someone like Matthew. But we also know that these are the Bible time creepers. Because while they weren't at this meal, they were apparently close enough to at least witness Jesus and his disciples there. right? And so they're close enough to see all this and the fact that Jesus had surrounded himself with these types of people. And they ask his disciples, why does your teacher eat with them? Right? Why does your teacher eat with them? Now, it's possible that this question was, was a harmless question, a harmless request for information. But if you're familiar with the Pharisees, if you've read some of the New Testament and see how these guys operate, you, you know that's probably not the case. See, more likely the posing of this question was, was not for information, but more of an accusation. Why does your teacher eat with those people? Don't you know that interacting with those people is against our laws? Don't you know that interacting with those people will make you unclean? Why are you interacting with those people? 
And we find Jesus' response in verse 12 and 13. It says, on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. See, I think these two verses may be some of the most important and powerful verses for the church today. We can't miss this. And if LifePoint is going to be the church that God wants us to be, then we must remember Jesus' words. Because it's with these words that he tells the Pharisees why he came. It's with these words that he tells the Pharisees his mission. He tells them, like a doctor, he came to help those who are sick. He came to love. He came to extend mercy. He came to offer salvation to those who are far from God. See, in this moment, Jesus reveals that he isn't playing by the same rules as the Pharisees. In the eyes of the Pharisees, a sinner is anyone who didn't live in obedience to their interpretation of the law. But see, Jesus' perspective is totally different. He doesn't see things that way. According to Jesus, a sinner is anyone who lives in opposition to God and his will. And unfortunately, we learn the Pharisees, they're wearing the wrong lenses. They're not seeing things clearly. They consider themselves to be righteous because of their observance of the law, but that isn't the true standard of righteousness. Their vision is so messed up, they're blind to their own sin. They can't even see it themselves. They don't recognize how far they are from the heart of God. And so in an effort to help them, in an effort to correct their vision, to, to uh, alter their perspective, Jesus says to them, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, living righteously or following all the rules, it doesn't mean a whole lot if you forget to love, if you forget to extend mercy, if you forget to show compassion. You see, at the end of the day, the Pharisees just don't get it. They fail to understand that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Here's the question that you and I need to wrestle with. Have we become like the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 9? Have we forgot why Jesus came? Have we forgot his mission to go to the sick and the lost? Have we become like the Pharisees? Earlier this year, Hillsong Worship released an album called There Is More, and there's one particular song on it called So Will I. And I want to read a line for you. Read, I definitely ain't singing, right? <laughs> and it says, I can see your heart 
8 billion different ways, a general reference to the world's population. I can see your heart 8 billion different ways. Every precious one, a child you died to save. If you gave your heart, excuse me, if you gave your life to love them, so will I. If you gave your life to love them, so will I. You see, these lyrics, they not only communicate Jesus' love for the lost, but also a commitment to follow his example to love. If you gave your life to love them, so will I. And I think we have to ask ourselves the question, is, is that my heart? Is that my heart? Is that really what I'm all about? And I have to ask myself that question all the time. As I, Derek, catch different thoughts going through my head in a certain day, as I see different people, What's my heart really like? Do I have a heart like Jesus that's going to go to those who are lost, the sick, the needy, the social outcasts, the sinners? Is that me? Or am I more like the Pharisees? Am I more focused on judging people, disagreeing with people? Check this, opposing them and their views. Am I more focused on keeping my distance? You see, in his response to the Pharisees, Jesus identifies himself as a doctor. How effective is a doctor if he never interacts with a patient? That'd be a terrible doctor, right? And so it shouldn't come as a surprise to us that Jesus is rubbing shoulders with those who need him most, those who are spiritually sick and in need of healing the tax collectors, the sinners. And if Jesus is a doctor, in essence, shouldn't the church function like a hospital? Shouldn't it be full of people who are spiritually sick and in need of healing? But we can't fulfill our calling as a hospital. We have no chance of fulfilling our calling to be salt and light if we're too much or if we're too concerned with with being like the Pharisees and condemning people instead of going to them, if we're too busy holding the people that Jesus came to save at arm's length. How many people are we holding at arm's length? See, I don't know about you, but one of my goals in life is to not live like the Pharisees. If I can accomplish that, I'll be doing something. Just to not be like the Pharisees. But unfortunately, I think we spend a lot of time wearing the wrong lenses. Just like the Pharisees. Too often, we don't see people as Jesus sees people. And whenever that happens, we have a tendency to write them off. To condemn them. And to put up walls. But that's not what we're called to do. And it doesn't matter how far you think someone is from God, because at the end of the day, it's not your job to save them. Jesus is going to go get them. He's the one that's going to go after the one. We can introduce them to Jesus, but it's not up to us to save them. So what does it matter to you if they're far and gone? No one is too far gone. I'm pretty sure that plenty of people thought Matthew was beyond saving. But Jesus didn't write him off, and as a result, God used Matthew to be a key leader in the church. 
So who are we writing off? Right? Who, you and I, who are we writing off? Remember when I asked you, who do you think would be at the table with Jesus? The outcasts? Who, who do you think would be there? Could it be that the people that came to your mind are the ones you've written off? Maybe. Is it the alcoholics? Is it those who are homeless? Is it drug addicts? Is it people of differing political views? Sad that we even have to think that, say that. Who cares? Those who belong to a different religion? Those who have a same-sex attraction? People of a different skin color than you? Who are you writing off? Thankfully, Christopher Yuan wasn't written off. Christopher had a promising career ahead of him in the field of dentistry. However, while going to school to earn his PhD, he got heavily involved in the consumption and distribution of hard drugs. And he was also living a homosexual lifestyle. A few months prior to earning his PhD, he was arrested on drug charges and sent to federal prison. His life was an absolute mess. And if that wasn't bad enough, he found out that he had contracted the HIV virus as a result of the lifestyle choices he had been making prior to prison. However, his mother never stopped praying for him. She prayed every single day. She knew her son was lost, but she hadn't written him off. She hadn't given up on him. She knew God loved Christopher and was more than able to save him. And long story short, God began working in the life of Christopher. And one day in the middle of his jail cell, he gave his life to Jesus. Because God had a plan for him and he was going to use him to do amazing things, just like Matthew. And through a series of miraculous events, Christopher's prison sentence was, was dramatically reduced. And a few months prior to his release, he applied to attend Moody Bible Institute from his federal prison cell. And he got accepted. His references was a janitor and a prison guard. 2009, he graduated. Now he serves as an adjunct professor at Moody Bible Institute. He's an author and he's a sought-after speaker. And I imagine he would be the first to tell you that Jesus came to seek and save the lost, no matter how lost they are. If LifePoint wants to be different, if we want to be a church that God calls us to be, then we must remember Jesus' words. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. And he didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners. And this passage in Matthew 9 is a reminder of our calling to invite those who are sick to find Jesus. You see, the world doesn't need any more judgmental, unloving, hypocritical Christians. We got enough of that going on. The world needs people who see people as Jesus does and loves people like Jesus did. So how do we do that, though? How do we do that? Because you know it's a process. It's not going to be a snap of a fingers and our, and our whole perspective is going to shift because we've been wearing the wrong lenses for so much time. We have to learn a new way of seeing things. And so I want to offer you just a few, few suggestions in the hopes that maybe there'll be some small steps toward doing and seeing people what Jesus does and loving people well. And the first thing we might need to do is ask for forgiveness for behaving like a Pharisee. 
You see, our vision is blurry. And more often than not, we don't treat people the way that God wants us to treat them. We're looking at them through our upbringing, our political views, bad theology, you name it, right? This is how we've been seeing people. But that's not how Jesus sees people. And until we acknowledge that and ask for forgiveness and move on from that, nothing's going to change. We also need to begin to pray for the lost, specifically praying for those you think are around that table. Pray that God would replace your condemnation with compassion. See, the reality is that we can't change our own heart. We need God's help. The third thing we got to do is figure out some way to love those who are lost. And that's up to you. What does that look like in your life? That's the example Jesus set for us. He went to those people. He rubbed shoulders with Matthew and his tax collector buddies. He interacted with the leper and touched him. we got to figure out a way to show love to those who need it most. The reality is we all got some work to do, myself included, when it comes to seeing people like Jesus does. And we all got work to do when it comes to loving those who are lost, no matter how lost we think they are. But with God's help, I know that LifePoint can be one of the best hospitals around. 